Hey, this is Matt Blois. I'm a producer for Big Biology. We're in between seasons right now, but we're dropping a few reruns into our feed before we start releasing new episodes in August. Today, we're replaying one of our most popular episodes of all time, our chat with Sarah Walker, an astrobiologist from Arizona State. Sarah's goal is to find a theory that distinguishes between life and non-life. That could help us understand the origins of life on Earth and search for life on other planets. We talked with her about how information may be the thing that ties all life together. In July, Sarah gave a talk called The Natural History of Information at an online conference organized by the International Society for Artificial Life. She argued that the lack of a general theory explaining what life is makes it difficult to predict how artificial intelligence or artificial life forms might affect the future evolution of Earth. She says unifying the long history of biological evolution with new technologies like artificial intelligence will require new paradigms for understanding what information does in natural systems. Here's our interview with Sarah Walker, which originally aired in September 2018. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. This is Big Biology. Today we're talking with Sarah Walker. She's a cosmologist at Arizona State University who studies the origins of life. We met up with her at a Gordon Research Conference in Biddeford, Maine, to talk about a unifying theory of life. Physicists have two major theories, quantum mechanics and general relativity, that explain how the world works. Sarah says biologists should be looking for a theory that's equally fundamental, that explains what life is. We also talked about whether biology could augment physics, the possibility of life on other planets, and the future of artificial intelligence. In this episode, we're going to play our full conversation with Sarah. We hope you enjoy it. So uh, we're here with uh, Sarah Walker today talking about uh, origin of life problems. Um, We're meeting up at a Gordon conference in uh, Biddeford, Maine, that's devoted to, uh, in the grand phrasing, uh, unifying life across scales in ecology. And um, here in a great set of talks, uh, Sarah's going to talk tomorrow morning, and we got her to sit down with us and to talk about her her work. She is a fellow at the ASUSFI Center for Biosocial Complex Systems and also an assistant professor at Arizona State University. And um, we're just super delighted that you're sitting down to talk with us. I'm excited too. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Um, So you've written a lot about the origin of life uh, on Earth and possible origin of life elsewhere in the universe. And we just wanted to dig into the details of of that. And um, I want to start by just reading a, a quote that you you've had in one of your papers. The origin of life is among the greatest open problems in science. How is it that life can emerge from non-living matter? Um, we totally agree. Like, <laughs> okay. Fabulously interesting question. <laughs> it's a bad start if you disagree with that. <laughs> and, and, and I guess, so maybe take us through what we do know just very briefly about the history of life on Earth. Um, sure. So, so you know, at what point did it arise? And then what, what's the sort of big open set of problems that are associated with that? Yeah, so, so it's interesting because you're asking about the historical origins of life on Earth. And I think there's something interesting about asking it as a historical question or asking it as a testable question. So we can get to that later. But um, so, so there, there is this historical question about origins, like what was the origin of life on Earth? And then there's another question that people ask in the origins community is, is the origin of life like a testable thing? Like, can we actually do it in the lab? And how do we actually understand that? Or can we look for origins of life on other planets? So there's actually a lot of ways thinking about origins that aren't just the historical what happened on early earth the the idea in current thinking is that life arose on our planet 
around 4 billion years ago, but the dates are very difficult to constrain. The earliest fossil evidence of life is fairly complex. Um, around 3.8 billion years ago, people have found those evidence. Those are the stromatolites. Yeah, those are the stromatolites. Um, and so those are like microbial mats. They're very complex ecological communities. Um, and um, if we try to push um, the understanding of the history of life further back than that, we don't have a fossil record. Um, and it's very unclear and speculative exactly when life emerged. Um, but a lot of people make arguments that since life was so complex at that stage, it had to emerge very early. Um, but we don't actually know the pace of evolution early on either. So it could have, it could have happened over a couple hundred million time scale. It could have been longer. Um, and so that part of it is very uh, speculative. So, um, so there's, there's a big sort of black box, if you go any earlier, that we don't know exactly when life emerged, we don't know in what environment, we don't know what it looked like when it first emerged, if it had the same chemistry um, that modern life has. Um, and so there, there's a whole host of questions there. Yeah. Are we, we're fairly confident, though, that it arose once. Presumably. So, so this, this gets into some interesting things, because um, there, there is this uh, well sort of discussed um, attribute of life that all of life on Earth shares the same biochemistry. Um, and so um, what's meant by that statement is every organism we've ever characterized has DNA. Um, every um, living thing um, you know, uses uh, ribosomes as part of the translation machinery, has proteins. So, so all of the biochemical architecture that's at the core of life is, is universal. Um, and so people will talk often about this idea of a last universal common ancestor. So, so um, previously I talked about the rock record, the fossil evidence with stromatolites for life, but we also have evidence of early life from uh, the molecular record. Um, and that's actually a really fascinating record in its own right because you know, there's some molecules like the ribosome that have been around for 3.8 billion years but they're not a physical structure. It's a thing that keeps reconstructing itself. So there's some kind of information associated with that, right? There's this informational pattern that keeps reconstructing itself on this planet. But, but if you're talking about like tracing all of that history back in time, it seems that all of the lineages that we study now have this common ancestor that we call the last universal common ancestor. Um, and that being singular is kind of, um, I think, misleading to a lot of people because they think it was a single cell. And in reality, it was a community of cells. And a lot of um, people that study um, this early phase of evolution um, recognize that there was a lot of horizontal gene transfer happening in things. So you can't even really talk about an individual with how these kind of populations were evolving. Um, and so what I think gets really fascinating about thinking about this early stage is that a lot of our things that we think about, like with individuality or um, the way we think about evolution being Darwinian and not necessarily collective, kind of break down when you get to that last oh, universal. The yeah. <laughs> so, so last universal common ancestor, I think. Um, so that's the sort. So, so one way to think about it, like because I'm a physicist and my brain always goes there, is like the last universal. Um, common ancestors, sort of like what the surface of last scattering is for cosmology. It's like this, you know, the surface where like, um, you know, uh, photons and, and matter are decoupled and we actually can see the early universe, but we can't see much earlier than that because it's just like a thermal shield. If you think about the last universal common ancestor, we had rapid genetic exchange of information and we don't really, you know, before that there was no genetic machinery. Like we don't know when, when genes evolved um, and we can't go back earlier than genetics because that's how we trace the history of things um, so so it's sort of it's sort of like this um, this surface that we hit all the lineages go back and they kind of unify in this kind of amorphous you know messy chemistry of you know rapid gene exchange um, and then we don't know what preceded that um, and so there's a lot of hypotheses about life and early life and how life originated 
Um, and so you'll probably hear all kinds of different ones that are, are more popular. But um, but the one I, I'm really kind of fascinated with most recently is this idea that that the emergence of life was actually like a planetary scale process. I think this is really um, an intriguing way of thinking about it because a lot of people think about life as a localized transition. So they think, you know, some little protocell formed in some pocket hydrothermal vent um, and some RNA got in it and that RNA started copying itself. Um, or you had some RNA forming on a beach somewhere and that started copying itself, but you always have this kind of sort singular of event. Take over the entire world. Yeah, this sort of singular event, evolution got started and it spread out. And that's a very biological narrative, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but, but then you have like, um, and so then you'll have other people talking about sort of like metabolism, self-organizing and, and these kind of things. Um, uh, and a lot of times that kind of gets also talked about as a localized event that you had some, you know, collection of molecules that formed what's called a, a autocatalytic set where each molecule can produce the next and it forms a closed cycle. So you get a reproducing system. So again, it's, it's trying to get at this idea of a self-reproducing system that can evolve. Um, but if you think, uh, um, so, so, but there's this whole set of other ideas, um, circling around, um, how biochemistry might emerge from geochemistry, which I think is really interesting because you have to think about like the earth and the emergence of life, you know, is emerging from the earth. Um, and that there actually might've been geochemical cycles that started organizing into biochemical cycles. Mm. And so Harold Morowitz was what, really, what kinds of geochemical cycles? well, so Harold Morowitz was one of the first people that really started talking about this and has been sort of um, promoted more recently by Eric Smith and Everett Schock and, and, um, all these kind of people that are thinking about these things. But, but the idea is, um, that central metabolism and particular um the reverse citric acid cycle is like the primitive core of metabolism actually might um have been something that was thermodynamically favored geochemically mm. and so you had the self-organizing cycle that actually became a product was a product of geochemistry and then out of that emerged all of these biochemical architectures because once you get the citric acid cycle going like that basically makes a lot of the things that are building blocks so, so do you mean that the citric acid cycle got going in in some prehistory in the absence of all of the enzymes that we yes. now know that catalyze yes. it. Yes. And so, yeah, so there's um, a lab in, um, uh, led by Joseph Moran that's been basically showing a lot of those steps can be um, catalyzed without enzymes hmm. and just by minerals. So, so there, there are testable hypotheses there, which is really interesting. So one of the reasons I think this is really intriguing and it's, it's, it's a relevant thing actually to talk about it ecology conferences, I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions when we're talking about life, about there being a fundamental unit of life or a particular scale that life is per like preferred to exist at, right? So I think ecologists appreciate this because they recognize, you know, ecological communities are very alive mm -hmm. in a sense that, you know, like the individuals aren't or the individual, it doesn't make sense to talk about individuals sometimes because they're so amorphous. Um, and so if we're thinking about origins of life, um, you know, you can think about the origins of life itself actually as an ecological process or some organizing cycle and maybe like individuality emerge later. Um, and, and one of the reasons um, that I find this really intriguing is because when I think about life and the kind of sort of informational perspective, if you want to call it that, that, that I think about it, um, it's really sort of like the hierarchy and, and that these processes exist across many scales. And the only natural boundary for that kind of process is actually at the planetary scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems very natural to think about life at, at a planetary scale. And, um, and it's actually very illuminating to, to do that. So, so one of the things I do in my science a lot is try to find the places where the thinking is so different or so askew from the way we're used to it that you actually have like potential for a lot of conceptual breakthroughs. They may be right, they may not be right, but at least thinking about the problem differently opens up lots of new questions, which is what you want to do in science. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach to things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, amazing. Um, 
as you're talking about these cycles and, and sort of geochemistry, I was thinking about uh, how do you graft on all of these much more familiar biological parts? So in, in your conception of that, you know, how, do, how did DNA arise? How do, how do we get RNA as a yeah. you know, sort of transfer mechanism? How, yeah, do, how do proteins I, as catalysts arise and then take over those functions that might have been formerly done by, by minerals, say, in the geochemical cycle? Yeah, so I think a lot of these questions are hard because we're so used to thinking about the details in biology mm -hmm. and not the underlying processes. Um, so as you're saying all these things, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, how am I going to explain that? How am I going to explain that from the theory? Um, but I but I think the the real thing is that, like, like for example, when you're talking about DNA, there's an interesting thing with DNA because um, DNA instantiates information that's relevant to the organism. And so what I think is important about DNA is that it's a molecule that allows you to copy information contained in the molecule to another molecule and do so reliably. Um, and so I think, I think the, I don't necessarily have answers to all the steps that you asked, but I think, um, a way of thinking about it is that we talk about a lot of things that are really essential to biology, like metabolism and reproduction and compartmentalization. And so a lot of times when people are talking about life, they'll try to make these list definitions of life. Like it has to have all these attributes. I think if there really is an underlying theory that explains life, that all of those properties are probably derivative of that theory. And so this is what appeals to me about thinking about information as being the organizing thing for living systems, because all of those things really do have sort of a natural description. Um, as being derivative processes. So, so copying of information is obviously really important, but information flows also can organize metabolic cycles. And if you have a compartment, that means um, that you actually um, are excluding some information from the environment and allowing some information in, and that actually can structure a system very differently. Um, and there are, are lots of really interesting um, sort of ways of thinking about what the underlying structure of these systems is if you translate everything into that kind of language. Then you get a much clearer, unified picture of what's actually happening from my perspective. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, that's a, that's a really good segue into when we teach introductory biology, you ask the students what's life and they start giving off the list that you just said, well, right, okay, right. <laughs> think awesome. about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, to transition into more yeah. sort of digital analog top down, the types of things that you've been thinking about, you, you have to quote you again, if I can get it right. Um, the two problems of defining life and solving its origin, they can't really be disentangled. So what's that about? Right. So, um, so I started down this, so I am an origin of life scientist. Um, and I, I think of my primary subject matter as being origins of life. But if you look at like what, what I do and what my research group does, almost none of it would seem like it's origin of life related. Um, because we look at biology across all scales, organization and, you know, things like ants or cities or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, but for me, it's because when I, I, I was in particular, when I was a postdoc, cause I was working at the center for chemical evolution at Georgia tech, um, building models for chemical evolution, there's always this problem with origins of life that you want to talk about this transition from non-life to life, but you have no criteria for what life is. And it, it would it would just drive me nuts because I'm supposed to be building models for chemical evolution and saying they're becoming more lifelike and I have no quantifiable, no quantifiable criteria. Um, and so this is why I think really um, that theory is critically important to origins of life and that that theory really must be one where you, you have some way of objectively saying what it is that you mean by when you say something is alive or not, or something is life or not. And alive and life are interesting also in their own right, because they're not exactly the same thing. Sure. Um, but um, so, so most of what I really try to think about is what is life and how would I actually and sometimes build a life meter or make some kind of quantifiable criteria for, for what life is. Um, and so for a long time, um, 
I think I was thinking that issue was more black and white than I, I do now that like maybe there was, um, cause you could ask, is it continuous or, or is there some discontinuity where you'll go from something is not alive to something is alive? Um, and the way I think about it now, um, is that, um, when we're talking about life, life is an example of a particular kind of physical phenomena. And I, and what I really think underlies it is that um, we really don't understand how information operates in the physical world. And if we understood the laws of information, they would really be the laws of life. Um, and so, so being a physicist, and again, this is one of my analogies, but I like these because they're illuminating for me about how I'm thinking about things, um, is that like if you want to understand the laws of gravitation, then you go and study a black hole because you have a very intense gravitational field there and you can understand and probe gravity very well. If you want to understand the laws of information and how information operates in the physical world, then you should go and study a living thing because that's where information actually has its most... Um, you know, it's like densest or, or most intense. Um, and so I think the origin of life process is really this transition where you have systems that where information is not really um, a prominent part of the physics of those systems to ones where it really is. And so we really have to understand how is it that information actually starts to gain control over the dynamics of the system and becomes an important part of it. And then most of the unfolding of the biosphere over the last four billion years, in my mind, is building um, increasingly um, abstracted levels of informational structures that are, you know, like you build up this hierarchy. And so the kind of information that we manage today is very abstract, not very tied to the physical substrate at all. So you can compare like the information on your computer. Um, like you guys have text on the computer I'm looking at right now. And um, you just read some of that text. So like the people listening to this podcast are going to hear that and it's going to get translated into their brain. So you think about all the different physical media that information went through and somehow it retains its properties of being information and meaning the same thing in this room as it does to the people that are going to be listening to this podcast. Now, if you look at like DNA and like early information structures, it's really difficult actually to copy the information in DNA to other physical media, other chemistry, and do it um, like so. So the information there is really tied to the particular chemical, physical thing, um, and so. Um, uh, nowadays, we can copy DNA to other genetic polymers, but that required four billion years of evolution. Um, so, so if you give me, a, yeah, that information can be instantiated in other things. But early information was um, it, it became abstracted from from those physical things. But the level of abstraction and the number of different things that you could actually instantiate that information in, and what that information was doing as far as its control over the dynamics of a system, has just been increasing over biological evolution. Mm -hmm. But somehow that started the origin of life. Wow, so many ways to go here. Um, yeah, I, I want to ask about um, you know you just sort of gave uh, your reason for um, trying to define what life is, and I would say you know that that's a hard question for most biologists mm -hmm. because we don't grapple with it very much. Weirdly, right? Yeah. And is that because most biologists sort of take it for granted that we already know what life is, yeah. or or do they feel like uh, it's too hard of a question and and unapproachable? Well, I think I think it's not necessarily relevant question to the questions that you're asking. If, if you're already studying biology and you want to ask questions about the biology we have on earth, then you don't really need to know what life is universally. So I think it just depends on what description level of description you're at. I think the, the place you really need to know is origins of life or looking for life on other planets. But if I just want to know, like, you know, I go in my backyard and I want to understand why the bear is eating the berries. I don't need to know what it, you know, what is the fundamental like physical structure that is a bear. Um, so, so I think, I think it just, um, and I, and I actually was thinking about this for my talk tomorrow. Cause I talk about like something called a hard problem of life. Um, and people usually talk about like the hard problem of consciousness, but like most neuroscientists don't care about what consciousness is, right. Cause they care about like the function 
functioning of the brain and they want to make your brain healthy and these kind of things. And, and consciousness is a really hard problem. We have like no handle on it. And I think most people studying biology, you know, they care about like the me mechanistic details of their particular question, but life is a very abstract concept. And it, it sort of, it exists at a different ontological level if you want or something, but, um, but it's, it's, it, it's just sort of like in a different ballpark of questions. Um, it's also like planetary formation and like gravitation, you know, like, yeah. It, I mean, I, I guess I totally agree with that. And I, you know, I have my own sort of set of biological levels that I work yeah. at. And yet when you pose it like that, I really want to know, like, <laughs> what, what is life? I mean, yeah. well, I think everybody wants to know. It doesn't, it doesn't mean everybody. But you, you've already, I think yeah. you've suggested I may be overstating or misrepresenting what you have said, but, but some of the points that you've made have been about, well, let's think of evolution again. Yeah. I mean, you sort of just made the comment that there were maybe things like communities, which is different than Luca is usually conceived. Yeah. So is there, any, I mean, have you thought about the potential value of biologists, no matter your level, no matter your interests, what types of things it might do? biologists yeah yeah no definitely i mean so 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 my quest is that there is quest. like quest it's a quest it's an epic quest like you know like i don't know some video game or something um no but like um but like obviously i'm really passionate about the problem i work on so like i really care about this problem being solved um i don't care if i solve it i just want someone to solve it and so i i really do view myself as just trying to like make enough of a conceptual shift that people can think about it differently so like we as a scientific community can make progress on these kind of questions because they're not ones that anyone any individual could possibly answer. Um, but the, um, but what I really care about is whether there is some unified explanation for all of life. And what I mean, like from the origin to understanding what the heck it is that we're doing as a technological civilization, because it's a very bizarre state for, to, to actually like be a thing that exists. I, I like, I, I mean, most people don't think about it, but like, especially being a scientist, it's really weird that we do science. Like what is science? It's, it's such a weird thing. Like there's these like physical things on the surface of our planet. They're thinking about how the world works and then they come up with theories and then those theories actually describe the world and then they can do new crazy things with that. Um, and the example I like to give is like launching satellites into space, which seems like kind of a mundane thing in our society. Now we do it all the time. But um, in order for that physical process to exist requires knowledge of the laws of gravitation, which means that you have to have a, a civilization or something like a technological civilization with sophisticated knowledge of, of how its world works, that it's understood the regularities associated with gravity, and then built technology to cause these transformations that can only happen if you have that knowledge. So that's a kind of information that allows this new thing to happen. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's very fundamental and very deep um, and so I think like if we had the proper theory for what these things are, what life is, that it would inform everything from what's happening in the chemistry inside cells to understanding, you know, the future of AI, because it, it's just about information and what information does. And so, so I would, I, I kind of, um, would consider all of these different levels that we look at biology as examples of that physics. Okay. Um, and we don't think about it that way, but, but that's actually the way I've organized my research group is they all work on like different, totally different biological systems. But the whole point is that looking at them from this unified perspective, hopefully we can get insights from one into another to try to figure out what that theory might even look like. And we don't have a clue what that theory looks like. So, but somebody has to jump in the deep end and pretend it exists and then see if it does. <laughs> So you've talked about digital versus analog yeah. and how you sort of, the, the solutions to right. that, that problem. Do you want to say something about how that fits with the definition of life? 
Oh, sure. So, so I think I think the reason for pro- proposing talking about digital and analog information processing systems um, is that, like, um, in particular, the origins of life. There's a huge dichotomy in how we think about that problem. So, people tend to be very disciplined specific in how they approach it, which I find fascinating. But like the leading hypotheses for origins of life have traditionally been genetics first or metabolism first. And the genetics first um, theory um, assumes that some molecule, um, presumably RNA, um, or something that can copy itself emerged on early earth from the, the some prebiotic chemistry and started copying itself and undergoing an evolutionary process. And therefore it was a genetic system. And then the metabolism first, um, says instead, Oh, well, what life really does is, is harness free energy. And so the first thing that life did wasn't necessarily evolution or copying information. It was harnessing energy from its environment. And so the first living entities were metabolic cycles. Um, and, and just to be clear, so so yeah. which, which of those is genetic and which is analog? So yeah, so I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm gonna get yeah, I'm gonna get there. So so the so the the point I want to make about the disciplines is that most people that think about the genetics um, tend to be like molecular biologists or biologists. Most people that think about metals metabolism come from physics or um, geochemistry or like these kind of backgrounds. So you can like, you can almost clearly see the disciplinary divide there. Um, and I think it's just because we're, we're struggling to make inroads to like, what are the relevant questions to ask for origins of life? How much of life is still there at the origin? Um, and how do we actually even get there? Um, and I think probably all of these things are in part right. And what we really need is a more unified approach to thinking about life, but that has to be at the appropriate level of abstraction. Um, and so from this sort of informational perspective, um, you could recast the genetics as being like a digital component was important early on and metabolism being sort of an analog or more, um, you know, continuous kind of system. Um, and then you can actually cast both in a common language and start asking kind of questions about them from that perspective. So, so that was really like part of the motivation. And I, I have become increasingly convinced that the origin of life problem is actually a problem of unification more than anything else. And usually we have major conceptual breakthroughs in physics when we have unifications of very different things. Um, and you can say that unification a lot of different ways. You might say, well, genetics and metabolism have to be unified in some kind of like way of understanding both at the same time. Or the way I talk about it in sort of like a much more abstract way is thinking about information and matter have to be unified or information and causation is, is another way I think about it, but but that there is some problem where we understand how matter and energy work and we, we understand information in the abstract, but we need to understand those two things as a unified concept. Another uh, trait of, of life that you've written about is um, that, that you can recognize life as the acquisition of top-down control mm-hmm. over networks of parts mm-hmm. that contribute to life. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you talk about that transition? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll give a little bit of background to under- motivate why I'm thinking about it that way. But, um, but there's this kind of interesting thing. Um, so I, I'm trained in physics, and in physics, um, like the way that we're taught to think about the world is try to reduce the world to like the most fundamental description of reality and the and the simplest. And it's usually a, a sort of very reductionist approach because you want to go all the way down to like elementary particles and understand like all the component parts. Um, and that's great and beautiful and elegant, and I absolutely I love physics and what it's been able to accomplish. Um, but but that description usually tends to be one where you'll take the mi- what what we call the microstate or, or the lowest level of description of the system, and then once you know what the microstate is doing, you basically say everything about any kind of um, level of description you might want to do above that. And usually, like um, the way we talk about levels is we'll say, oh well, there's a macroscopic description, and it just means you don't know like the position and velocity of every particle. Um, and so thermodynamics is, is is sort of a classic theory that, that gets at that kind of thing because temperature is a very um, good way of describing, um, you know, like a gas of particles, but you don't have to know the position of every particle or anything to talk about something like temperature. 
When you get to life, it gets a lot harder um, because if you talk about those macro scale level properties, um, those tend to be things that we associate with, like with function, for example, is like a relevant macro scale property in biology. And, and when you're talking about those kind of things, they actually influence the system. So it's not like it's just some like meta level description where you don't have complete knowledge of what the microstates are doing. So you're using it as an effective description. But I think it's actually fundamental to what that system is doing. Um, and so I, I can even just like, I mean, as a scientist, we're described like, you know, we're describing a thermodynamic theory, but then we use thermodynamics to go and do something in the physical world. So somehow that abstraction actually, you know, matters. So that was my example of, of gravity too, is that like these, these sort of higher level things actually become what I would call causally efficacious in their own right. And that's the top down aspect. It's, it's that it's something that's not physically instantiated in any particular substrate. It can, it can exist in many, it can be copied between many, but somehow it actually can impart control the dynamics of a system or, um, uh, yeah. Um, and so, so the top-down causation is actually that part of it. Mm -hmm. And if I just try to like apply that idea to the origin of life on earth and I'm imagining, you know, sort of networks that are physically mm -hmm. instantiated. And then I'm trying to imagine like, how does this top down control, like, like, oh, what, like how does that crystallize out of this stuff? Yeah, that's so how, how does it? Um, not sure yet. <laughs> yeah. Ask in a few years. I actually, like, I just got a project funded where like, we're, we're going to try to get at that a little bit more concretely with like actual experimental data and try to measure what information is doing in these like intermediate stages between non-life and life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have a couple experimental co collaborators, um, Kate Adamall and, and Lee Cronin, um, that work on like sort of opposite ends of the original life spectrum for their systems. And so the idea there is that we're actually going to go through and build a bunch of chemical systems and look at how information is structuring those systems to try to understand what's happening. But I, but I, when you say yeah. build a bunch of chemical systems, you mean like in the lab, like in the lab. So Kate, for example, works with synthetic cells, so mm -hmm. she can build cells with biological parts, but they're very minimal. Mm -hmm. So it might be like, you know, like a couple of genes instead of like hundreds of genes that we have in real cells. Mm -hmm. And you can actually track, you know, like what, what is, what is information doing in that system? And then um, Lee takes these like complex chemical mi mixtures and, and he tries, tries to start from like simple building blocks. Actually, they're not complex to start, but he evolves complexity into them by varying environments and, and using, um, uh, he has like these robotic algorithms that he does like these many iterations and ensemble experiments to generate statistics over how chemistry is actually um, increasing its complexity, but like going down these many different paths for chemical space. And so, so the idea is like, can we actually bridge those two things, but try to look at them as abstract level of like, what is the information actually doing? Um, but I, I think that's the, the critical question about, about all of this. And, and actually the top-down causation aspect of it is a very deep philosophical question because a lot of people think that can't even work in practice because there's no room at the bottom for extra causal forces. Um, and what I would, I, what I, I think part of the, the misnomer of that is people think there's a microstate and a macrostate, and that macrostate is exerting control over its own microstate. But that's not true at all. Um, what's actually happening is, you know, I'm I'm a information processing system, and when I look at the external world, I don't have access to all every degree of freedom in the external world. I have certain ones I care about and pay attention to. And those actually become causal in my dynamics because those are the ones that are I'm internalizing and interpreting about my environment. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a kind of top-down causation. It just means that I'm not coupled to every single degree of freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm coupled to a reduced set of degrees of freedom, and that's what I call information. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think it's anything mystical. I think it's just that we haven't really gotten to the bottom of, of what that is and, and how that starts happening. Um, but I think it happens 
in chemistry um, at a certain scale of, of chemical complexity. It's just that the chemical systems become so rich in the possibility space and so rich. Just like if you think about like a, you know, a folded protein or something, there's no way that like the function is a small component of the system and all the rest of the degrees of freedom don't really matter to the function, right? So when you start getting those kind of systems, then you have the possibility of information actually starting to matter. Um, now how it can start to matter and why on earth it actually did this weird thing that it doesn't seem to have done on Mars or other planets in our solar system is is a really hard question. Um, but I think I, I think the first step is to get into this kind of conceptual framework where we can start thinking quantitatively about it and asking these kind of quantitative questions. And then we're in this like kind of space where we're feeling out, you know, what does that even look like and mean? And, you know, starting to try to connect to experiment. And then hopefully like the theory and experiment will start feeding back on one another and we'll actually get some more concrete ways of talking about that. So the... I we weren't going to bring it up, but I have to bring it up in, in light of what you've been talking about. Where do viruses fit into the way you think about it? Well, it's because, no, the, it's the way that you cast it, we do not no plans to talk about it, but it's easy. No, 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 it's great. Yeah, no, everybody always asks. So, um, so I, I think the, one of the biggest misnomers with trying to find life is to say a thing is alive and we can draw a boundary around that thing. Like that's just not what life is. Um, in my mind, life is a dynamical process and it's one where you have um, particular informational patterns that are like structuring physical systems across space and time. Um, and that's what life is. So you can't draw like a hard boundary around that process. And from that perspective, of course, viruses are part of a living architecture. They're, they're part of life because they contribute to that kind of process. Okay. Um, and so this goes, so, so I mentioned there was a distinction between life and alive. And in my mind, life is all of the things that, that um, are generated by this kind of process. Um, so, um, so like people get mad that I think a computer is life or a screwdriver is life, but those things literally would not be created without information. Yeah. It was consistent. That's okay. Yeah. And, and then alive is the systems that are actively constructing things. They're the ones doing the information processing to actually build those things and like, and use internalized information to actually do the construction. Hmm, that's a great um, distinction. Yeah. So, so I think there, there's, and, and both are kind of necessary for understanding life and what life's doing. They're, they're very fundamental to like trying to, to figure all, that all out. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's sort of like von Neumann's programmable yeah. constructor type. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love von Neumann's stuff on universal constructors. I think he was, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. So, so let's dig into yeah. that. Yeah. So, so what is a universal constructor? Yeah. So, so von Neumann, um, I think he was really inspired by Turing, but his, his whole uh, line of reasoning was, um, you know, Turing was interested whether you could compute any computable function and von Neumann was like, well, that's interesting, but I'm interested in like, you know, real physical things. So, so could you build a machine that could build any physical thing? Um, right. So, so this is a really interesting question. Is it possible to make, have one device or one thing that could construct, build any possible thing that could exist? And, and just, just remind our listeners when this thinking this was happening, was, uh, when was von Neumann doing his work? Yeah. So it was like 1940s, 19, I think he died in 1950 and, um, his book on self-reproducing automata was unfinished and then it was, it was finished uh, posthumously, mm -hmm. um, by Burks. But, um, the, yeah, so, so this was very early. Yeah, very early. Um, and he inspired a lot of people to think about things very deeply. Um, but yeah, so, so, um, so this gets into, um, his real question was about building a machine that could reproduce himself itself. And so that's why he went into this idea of a machine that could build anything, because if it could build anything, it could build itself. Um, and so what he recognized though, is in order to build itself, it had to specify itself, which means it had to have a program or some kind of information to tell it, 
to build itself. And it's really interesting because there's some paradoxes associated with self-reference there where like if you're talking about building yourself, you have to have an image of yourself and then you end up getting in this sort of like hierarchical loop. So that image inc includes the, yeah. the program itself. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So, so he kind of quickly recognized that you would, you know, you need an infinite storage space to actually specify all the future generations. Um, and so, so what his resolution was, was his, his idea of a universal constructor actually contains three parts. It contains the constructor, which is the thing that does the building. It contains the instructions, and it, which specify how you make the thing. And then it contains a third component, which he called a supervisory unit, which tells um, the system when to copy the instructions. And the copying of the instructions um, basically means to just make a second copy of it, but it doesn't, it's completely blind to knowing what the actual instructions tell the system to do. Um, and that was actually um, very prescient. It's, it's, it's interesting because Schrodinger was able to predict the structure of DNA, talking about the constraints of the laws of physics for being able to have some kind of genetic heredity. And von Neumann kind of did similar logical arguments about what are the necessary conditions in order to have something that could self-reproduce. Um, and both of them ended up predicting really fundamental things about biological structure before they were um, discovered. So, so Schrodinger basically predicted that you need to have an aperiodic crystal, and DNA is an aperiodic crystal. And von Neumann predicted that you need to have something that can take these instructions and be able to build things. And that's sort of the architecture of having DNA be the instructions. When you have DNA copied by a polymerase, it doesn't care what the information in the DNA is contained. And then when you actually read out the DNA, you have something called a ribosome that can make, in principle, any possible protein. So it's not exactly a universal constructor, but it's universal over the set of proteins. Right. Mm -hmm. right? So, so it has that kind of logical architecture. So it's really fascinating that that actually um, ends up being the case. And then, and then interesting to me, so, so I, um, I'm a big fan of something called constructor theory that David Deutsch and Chiara Marletto have been working on, but Chiara wrote this really nice paper basically doing what I think is kind of an argument like what Schrodinger did, where he talked about the laws of physics and what's necessary for um, properties of systems to exist. And she made the argument based on von Neumann's things that in order to have... Um, evolution with a, and like the, the appearance of design with no design laws actually requires that kind of architecture and having digital information. And so there's really this interesting thing that like the way the, the way physics is structured is actually telling us a lot about what life can and can't do and what information can and can't do. Mm -hmm. It's just that people don't usually like try to do these logical arguments to reason into it. Yeah. Neat. So, so just so I make sure I understand myself, yeah. so, so you're not claiming that life itself is a universal constructor. No, you're, you're claiming no. that this system of DNA and ribosomes... It's universal and, over that. So, yeah. yeah okay. But there is an interesting... So, so the way I think about evolution, um, which is very abstract, um, and what evolution is doing is that if you look at the history over life on Earth, I think in, there has been an increasing number of things that can happen. So if you think about what a constructor is, a constructor mediates a particular um, task or a particular thing to be transformed into another thing. And it might be that it takes some materials and makes itself, or it takes some materials and makes something else. Um, and that's actually what a constructor is defined in constructor theory. But if you, if you look at the evolution of life on Earth, what I think is happening is that you're getting more and more constructors or more and more things that can be constructed because there's more and more information instantiated in those systems. There's actually an arrow of increasing number of transformations that the information on this planet can mediate. And there's no better example than that of that than our civilization and our imagination. Like if you think about like science fiction, it's like, you know, Actually, this is my favorite example. This is getting really abstract. I talk to my, I talk to my, yeah, I talk to my students about this kind of stuff. 
But um, but something that really fascinates me um, is is um, so through most of biological evolution, um, we increased like the amount of things that could be done by by recording history, um, historical information, right? So we we had knowledge of past environments, and that allows systems to be more adaptable. And then um, they evolved the capacity to control those environments and make new chemistries happen, and, and these kind of things. But if you think about like humans and what we do, we have something that we call imagination, and that's actually a really interesting kind of physical process because we can actually like imagine things that never existed and then sometimes we can like actually generate those things right so when you think about like science fiction like Jules Verne writing about rockets and things like nobody thought those things could exist but then because somebody imagined them like they they actually like they came into existence um, and that's a really like a really interesting kind of thing um, to be happening and so I think all of biological evolution has been this this progression of information increasing what's possible um, and you could actually talk about a physics that's sort of like a, an entropy over paths in some sense rather than states that, that there's um, you know, more and more things that can happen in the future because of the particular information structure. Um, and that, um, and that you know, us and our ability to have abstract thought and all of these kind of things just fit naturally in that framework. Um, so, so would you consider the human brain to be a kind of universal constructor in the sense that we can imagine anything really, right? But I we mean, can't build anything. We can't build it. Okay. No. So but but I, we, we, we can build the thought of it in our minds, yeah. right? But that's not the same thing. No, it's not okay. the same thing as actually physically instantiating it. Okay. So I, where I was, I'm glad you asked that though, because where I was going with this with the universal constructor is I think we think of that as an individual object. But the way I think about it is that the biosphere as a whole has become a better and better approximation to a universal constructor. Because the entire planet can do more things. You know, human civilization can do more things, but you as an individual really can't do that much. Yeah. Um, and so, um, <laughs> so, so, but it goes back to this idea, information is really hard to tie to a physical object. Um, and so it's, it's not like, like I can point, you know, to this thing and say, this is a universal constructor because you have to talk about like, where's the information in the system and things. Um, so, so I think, I think there's like maybe, biology and why it has this arrow of complexity is that once you get the system going and you transition into this kind of physics, it, it, it's this unfolding of this structure that's trying to become, like it's becoming a better, better and better physical instantiation of something like a universal constructor, but it's it probably, it would never get, it, yeah. it's an, so, so, so David Deutsch has written about this, but like whether it's actual, actually possible for a universal constructor to exist is a really interesting question, and we don't really have a good segue into that because, like, that says a lot about the laws of physics and what's possible, and and we just like I, I, I'm approaching that question is really hard. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a related set of things about the history of life on Earth, and those are you know the very major transitions that we've seen yeah. in in the complexity mm -hmm. of life. So, um, those would be things like the acquisition of eukaryote, yeah. eukaryotic uh, organelles, or multicellularity, or um, you know transitions to land and more complex um, e ecosystems. So, um, do each of those transitions involve some kind of acquisition of, of energy or a new use of information yeah. and a sort of new way of using universal constructors or yeah, yeah um, something like that.
like that, yeah. I definitely think so. Um, so so there's that really famous paper by um, Maynard Smith and Zath Mari about the major transitions and associating them with changes in information processing and storage. And I found that work really inspirational from this kind of abstract perspective and talking about. Um, but I think I think if I wanted to quantify a major transition, I would say that you you had a new scale on the system emerge that actually became causally efficacious over the lower scales. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so you should be able to actually quantify that by the information flows in the system. If you start looking at some macro scale properties that they become more predictive of the micro scale properties. And so I did, I did a toy model in a, in a life paper years ago showing that, that, that kind of transition actually can occur. Um, but, um, so I think, um, I, I think, yes, um, it definitely has to do with, with, information everything in, in biology does apparently everything i mean that's, that's the goal right it's like to try to unify everything but but those are particularly interesting cases because you have like entire like so and a good example is like right now we seem to be undergoing a major transition where you know like most people are living in cities and there's sort of like globalization and we have the internet and things and so so it's really like the transition of like you know local societies and global society and that's a very kind of top-down transition too because now like my actions as an individual are influenced by something about the global state of the planet it, right, mm -hmm. so it's like it's like you can have an affect, um, like you know, a particular emotional response in billions of people at the same time on this planet. Yeah. Like that's never been able to happen in history, but it's because like we now have these collective structures, um, and they're difficult to point to because they're not they're not like a thing, mm -hmm. um, and so that's why they're really difficult to think about. But like, but a society exists; it is, it is a physical thing. It's just not it's not you know an individual. Yeah. So based on this sort of this, uh, well, is there any way to get to the number of transitions that have happened on the planet from sort of, you know, basic ideas about top-down control? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so the way I think, so um, let me see if I can articulate this well. But, but I think like if you want to, I think about life as like a bunch of partitions in a system. So like, and those partitions are interacting. So presumably, like if I wanted to characterize you, I should be able to like see how many partition, like if I could, you know, look at you from this abstract perspective, how many partitions you are, you have and how they're hierarchically embedded, like how many are like some partitions of another partition and be able to say something about how many of those kind of transitions occurred. Um, and I think that's sort of like part of the origin of life process is that, you know, the systems um, kind of had this um, partitioning of their, like in physics, I would like, like say of their state space and also like their physical space and those partitions became coupled and then you got like higher order partitions and yeah, now I'm getting very abstract and like, I don't, like I, it, it's difficult to explain because there's a, a concept there, but like, and, and I guess this is useful also for listeners that like when you're in these conceptual spaces, articulating things is really sure. hard, but you have to push yourself there and like think about it to try to actually like formalize it. And so, um, it's always a moving target. Um, but that's fun. Well, maybe you yeah. pull back to, yeah. the, to the 20,000 feet. We often do a 20,000 feet well, pullback. Um, so uh, physicists, chemists have been incredibly good coming up with theory. And mm -hmm. biologists just take a different approach like we sort yeah. of started. Um, do you think that there will be theories in biology one day as there are? I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so so I really think that biology is, the, or, well, in particular astrobiology, because I think you have to talk about observations on other planets, but biology is the next frontier in physics. So people think people think about physics as being subject-specific, right? So it has to do with particles. It has to do with um, gravitational systems or, like, these kind of things. And biology has nothing to do with physics. But biological systems physically exist. And I think about physics as a particular way of thinking about the world. It's just when you're, you're a physicist and you're thinking, about things, you're trying to abstract them to a, a very universal 
um, and powerful explanation. And those tend to be very simple because you want something that can describe many systems. But getting to that level is really hard. And I think we just haven't gotten there with biology yet. But my hope is that we would. Do you have any sense of what they're going to look like? Um, yeah. Um, I, 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 do, I, I mean, I do in the context of the whole conversation. Because like, from my perspective, since I've been thinking about it for a while, like I've gone down this particular road thinking that the way I've been describing these systems is whatever that level of abstraction sure. is. That has something to do with information systems, like you think about constructors, um, number of transformations that can happen in physical systems. If you want to count that, like that would be maybe like where the laws of biology are. Is, um, one way I say what what biology is doing is increasing the number of transformations that can happen as a function of time. So, um, so, and, and that's interesting because, because of this point that it actually literally makes it possible for states to exist that wouldn't exist otherwise, mm -hmm. like satellites orbiting our planet mm -hmm. or quantum nanotechnology or whatever you want to. So, so, so the flip side of that question I think is, um, are there going to be new physics that come out of, out of biology and, you know, yes. so, so Schrodinger himself suggested that in yes, his life. Did, and, yeah. and I think earlier in the conversation, you sort of alluded to no, that, yeah, that, that so, you as a physicist are going to right. biology because there's like this density of yes. information that yes. just doesn't exist anywhere yes. else. So, I mean, what, what are the new physics that are going to come out Right. So, so, so my reason for working, so I was inspired by like the founders of quantum mechanics or like Einstein as a student, like they opened up entirely new fields of physics. And so for me, I feel like we have quantum, quantum mechanics and we have general relativity and there must be some theory that's equivalently fundamental that explains life and what life is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that like going back to things I said earlier, I think that's information. And so we don't have a theory of information and what information is in the physical world. And if we did, it would be explanatory of what life is. Is mm -hmm. uh, an implication that there's going to be some portion of biology and physics that are going to fuse in the future and that they're going to become sort of yeah. the, the same field, really? Yeah, yeah. 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 Neat. Yeah. Wow. So I guess let's make it the, the kind of question. This is just like the virus one. I know you get sure. it a thousand times. No, sorry, I like that. How, how common? How common is life in the universe? Oh yeah, this is a great question. Um, yeah, so I I always answer this two ways. I answer the like optimistic like Sarah, and the one that like you know the reason I'm an astrobiologist is yes, we will find life somewhere some one day. And then I have sort of agnostic uh, scientist Sarah that has absolutely no clue, um, <laughs> which I think you know you have to admit as a scientist. Um, but I actually admit that from sort of logical reasoning that we have evidence for only one inhabited planet, um, and um, and we wouldn't be on this planet observing that planet being inhabited unless there happened to be an origin of life on our planet. Um, and so if you actually, this is the anthropic yeah, bias. the anthropic bias argument. Um, but, um, and so, um, so if you, if you do like proper statistical analysis of those facts, one origin of life, our existence is contingent on it, then um, it's um, equally likely that life is really rare and we're the only life in the universe or that um life is very common like you can't you actually can't distinguish those hypotheses um so so i am but this also motivates me i i just i think we have no idea if there's other life out there and we should just state it as such because i think we would reason about the problem better um because what i see in my field a lot is a lot of astrobiologists will say life is common um and they'll make arguments like oh look how many exoplanets that are earth-like we found so there's so many environments life must be common because there's lots of places for it to form or life emerge rapidly on earth therefore it must be common because it must be an easy thing to happen um, and both those arguments are false for the reasons 
as I stated previously, is that there's there's literally no evidence, and we don't know the mechanisms for the origin of life. We knew the mechanisms we could extrapolate to how those mechanisms will operate on other planets, but we don't know the mechanisms. And so without having a theory or an observation of another living thing, we literally can't say anything about the likelihood. Um, so, right so, so how much would it change the calculus if um, we find life on Mars in the next 10 or 20 years? It would change it significantly. I mean, like, if there's two planets in our solar system that are inhabited, that means that life is probably really likely. But it... Uh, but it, unless it I had mean, it seems like, from Earth. Exactly. Like, so, yeah. so if they're related yeah. to one another, right? It yeah. depends on like how closely yeah. related they yeah. are and whether we can yeah. sort of right. foresee a, a common yeah. Luca. Yeah. Uh, so that's why, like, sometimes I say my biggest disappointment would be found life on, on Mars and it's just Earth life on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It would just, I mean, it would just ruin it <laughs> for me. Other people might be excited. Oh, life can live on Mars, which is exciting, but it's yeah. not, it's not the same so, so given how far away stars are, talk about um, how are we trying to figure out whether there is life on other planets? Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of approaches to that, um, and I work a lot um, in the exoplanet community now, so I, I find their discussions fascinating about how to look for life. But but the, the sort of um, popular, like, kind of consensus thinking right now is that there is no particular smoking gun biosignature. Like, a lot of times people used to think, like, if we found oxygen in the atmosphere, it would just be totally, you meth know. Methane's another one? Methane's another one. And then there's this idea that oxygen and methane together, because they're a particular kind of disequilibrio, would be evidence of life. Um, but the problem turns out to be much more complicated than that because we only have the example of Earth and we're trying to use Earth biology on other planets. But even if we take Earth, you know, and we, we do the metabolisms we know on Earth or atmospheric gases we know biology produces and we put them in models of planets around other stars or with other compositions, the space is so huge that it's just it's littered with false positives of things that, that look like Earth-like life but are totally not biological. Um, and so the exoplanet community is working really hard to try to build models where, like, you can actually definitively say that this is life or not. But my personal thinking on it, and we actually just, I, I just led a, a, a paper on future directions in exoplanet biosignatures, um, where we make this argument is one of many arguments in the paper. But um, my feeling is that we really have to move from this idea that we're going to look at a single planet and be able to identify its atmosphere and characterize that life is on that planet to thinking about looking for life more statistically. And that like, when we think about modeling planets or the observation, we can get really little data from exoplanets like like almost nothing, like a couple molecules in the atmosphere. And then like, you know, we might know like a few features about the planet, but it's, it's, it's very minimal. Um, and then, um, so we don't even actually have a tight constraints on like the composition of these planets, let alone the biology on the, like, we can't even like, we don't have models for the planets and then we don't know what life is on top of those planets. So it's a, it's a really hard problem. So, but, but a lot of times when people do like planetary evolution models, they, they can build like a statistical distribution of what they think planetary composition would be like. And so my feeling is if we started doing statistical searches for life and we had some models for like what we would expect for the distribution of atmospheric compositions, for example, based on no life on those planets. And then we like see something different. We might be able to say, something about and like constrained likelihoods of life existing in an ensemble um, and that we wouldn't have to rely on detecting life on a single planet and knowing exactly what we were looking for. So it makes sort of more probabilistic arguments about yeah, pro Yeah, basically. And a lot of people that are, are like doing exoplanet stuff now are moving more in like Bayesian inference approaches for inferring properties of exoplanets. And I think that we're going to have to do some kind of inference and, and statistical type analyses to actually detect life. And people haven't been thinking about it like that because there's always a 
simplistic assumption that we know what life is and we'll know it when we see it. And to really think about it as a scientific problem, you have to completely change all of your conceptions about being able to recognize it. And you have to think about, you know, actually doing inference on a system and like, you know, trying to build up these models for like how likely life is on this planet as the, the valid hypothesis. And so, so I think the community is already moving in that direction. I find that really exciting because, um, like, I, you know, I always make these analogies with physics, with astrobiology, but like I think about it as, um, you know, like I want to know the distribution of life out there, not just whether we have life on one planet. So if you do these kind of like statistical searches, you actually can constrain with an ensemble, like how likely is it that, you know, a certain percentage of them have life. Um, and that's more informative actually from this anthropic or these statistical arguments for theory building and for like, you know, actually constraining what we think this process is and, and how often it happens on planets and things. So, so if there is life out there on other planets, how likely is it that there's also other intelligent? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how a couple of those questions are. From my perspective, like I just have a gut feeling and usually like most of my science is initially based on gut feeling anyway, because you have to be passionate enough about something to like try to push it and see if it's true or not. But, um, but just my gut feeling is that once the origin of life, so the origin of life is the hard question. How do you get this process started in the first place? And I, I almost feel like it's the quantum to classical transition where you're talking about two different, totally different physics and somehow you have to go between them. And so there's like information doesn't really matter and suddenly it's like everything. Um, and, and how you go between those is, is really hard. But I think once that process gets started, it's like an unfolding process and it keeps building on itself. So I think I think most planets would, would evolve toward intelligence, but... So does that help with consciousness too? Um, I, th- I think so, but I like that's a really hard question too. Um, and I and I always think so. So I think consciousness is a different problem from life. Um, but I do think that they're kind of um, they're related in, in some way. And so the way I think about it is like so the hard problem of consciousness is why we have internal experience. Um, and, um, and that's really hard because that you can't explain in any kind of substrate level narrative. There's, there's absolutely no reason that we have to have an insider or, or be thinking about the world. Um, and from my perspective, the life problem is like, why is it that your experience would actually matter to the world or, or any kind of internal information processing? So, so they're kind of dual in some sense. One is like the internalization of like, you know, information and, and what it's like to be on the inside of that information. And then the other one is like, why does that actually have a physical influence on the world? Um, so, so I don't think they're wholly unrelated, but I do think that, that right now there's, there, I, unification, like, so, so I think life will be solved before consciousness at this point. Um, consciousness might be in the next century. I think AI will help a lot with that. Um, and then I think down the road, like a couple hundred years, the unification problem people will be talking about is consciousness and life hmm. from physics. Okay. And like people are worried about guts right now, grand unified theories, like yeah, yeah. wait a few hundred years, it'll get way more interesting. <laughs> Physicists, physics will get so interesting in the next century. So but, you did, you brought up AI a couple of times, not, yeah. not really said much about it. So the way that you're thinking about life, what is it, does it say anything for how we might design AI, especially to avoid big problems with AI? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, so I am, I, I, I'm interested in the AI control problem, but I don't know how to approach that problem yet for my thinking. So I talked to a lot of people in that community and, and. I'm intrigued by the problems that they have, but I, I also am thinking about it from a totally different perspective. So, so bridging that right now is, is difficult for me, but, um, um, but I do think, I think a, so I think there's a lot of things that we think are unnatural about what humans are doing right now, like climate change. We think it's unnatural. Um, but if you look at the history of life on the planet, 
you know, life has changed the climate dramatically at a planetary scale many times. The only difference now is that we're cognitively aware of it and we actually have the ability to do something about it. And that's a very different system, but, but the climate change itself is not unnatural. It's a natural bio, byproduct of biological activity. Um, and so um, I think AI also, like people think it's so unnatural or our technology is so unnatural. But if I look at the evolution of life on Earth, all life has been doing is building increasingly sophisticated informational architectures. Um, and so I think AI is just a continuation of that process. And I also think it's a particularly interesting one because I, th I think... I think AI will be critical to like actually identifying the laws of life in the sense that it's very difficult for us to see ourselves, but AI is not us. It's something we created. And so they can actually see us in ways we can't see us. It's sort of like building, a, like we built microscopes to see cells and telescopes to see the universe. I think AI are going to see life in a, in a more fundamental way. We just got to hope that they don't gain top-down causal yeah. control over us, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I, yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very much more thinking that it's going to be kind of some kind of hybrid system. And I, I actually also don't have any, any qualms about like our progeny being, uh, AI or, or, yeah. um, I mean, despite my negative comment, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't either. Or technology. Yeah. Because cause I think, I think people, people think, oh, we're going to be cyborgs in the future. Or we're going to be robots. But I'm like, but we created them. It's like, you know, they're still part of our lineage. Just another place to live. Yeah. Right? And to think, yeah. And to think that biology, like, I mean, humans are going to continue to change, there's no species on this planet that has existed the entire existence of the planet. All we're doing is increasing the longevity of the systems by building these. So, so I actually like Nick Bostrom's. He made some argument at one point about, um, you know, all species go extinct. So AI is either going to make us immortal or it's going to kill us. And those are like the options, right? But, but we're not, we're not going to last forever anyway. And so, so I think it is critically important. Um, and I really like all the stuff like Future of Life Institute and stuff are, are doing to try to, to make sure that AI is positive for humanity, but, but that's also hard to understand what that means. Um, and so, so one of the, in, so I'm actually working with one of my students and she's, um, in Japan right now presenting on major transitions in planetary evolution is, is the name of our paper. Um, but the idea there being that the planet as a whole has undergone like major transitions, informational processing structures, and we're undergoing a major one now. And AI is, is a part of that. And we need to think about AI as a planetary scale system because our technology is a planetary scale system. And so we have to think about how it's embedded in planetary context and how that fits in the continuation of, yeah. and I, and so, so I guess from the control perspective, like my, going back to my earlier comment, my, my philosophy of how I do science is always to try to find a question no one is asking to make an inroad so that we can ask things a little bit differently. And AI, I think there's a lot of really great questions, a lot of really great intellects working on that. So I think what we're trying to do is make this inroad from the planetary science perspective and, and sort of the astrobiology perspective. Um, but that's very early right now. So maybe in a couple of years, I'll have more to say about that. And I got to ask one more thing, which is, um, uh, you know, at what point, how soon do you think we're going to consider AI to be alive? Yeah, yeah, I already think they are. Yeah, and the screwdriver's I, alive. And yeah, well, well, the screwdriver's not alive, but but um, <laughs> it's life. Yeah, because it's not doing anything. But um, uh, I, you know, sometimes so, so people are like worried when AI is going to take over. I'm like, it already took over. I mean, like you do, you know, like you're so much of your life is dominated by technology. It's like I, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just a different thing. Like it can be bad, just like anything can be bad. You can eat too much chocolate and it's bad for you, but everybody loves chocolate. So, so when is AI going to have consciousness in a sense? Well, that's a different question. That's a totally different question. And I, like I said, I don't think we understand consciousness. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure if... Um, 
I, I think you have to have the physical media right for consciousness. And I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, you mean may, maybe computers aren't designed in quite the right way yet yeah, in order yeah. to facilitate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, be, yeah. be, because of connections and yeah. there's not enough of a simulation right. of so sort think, of neurons. Yeah, yeah. So for example, like it might be that like people building, um, you know, more complex chemical systems actually build con- conscious systems first before soul chips, just because of the dynamic possibilities available in those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think, I think, yeah, we don't, we don't know enough about consciousness for, and, and I think about consciousness a lot, but it's a periphery problem for me because I'm, I'm mostly focused on the life problem. Um, so I don't think I, I have something super concrete to say about that, except that we don't know what consciousness is and people often convolute intelligence and artificial intelligence with consciousness and AI is not about consciousness. Um, and you know, we have a difficult time assessing consciousness in people. So how are we going to do it in machines? Um, I, I think that's a, it's a really hard problem. And I, I think people kind of mix the issues there a lot. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Sarah Walker. Her ideas about searching for a universal theory of life blew our minds and honestly got us really excited about the future of biology. We hope you liked that conversation as much as we did. If you're a resident of Earth or an alien living on another planet, we'd love to hear from you. What did you think about this episode? What would you like to hear about? You can reach out to us through our website, www.bigbiology.org, or Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you like the show, please consider giving us a donation. You can donate on the website. Thanks to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for supporting the podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll talk to Patty Brennan about genitalia and sexual conflict and Mihaila Pavlichev about epistasis and pleiotropy in gene networks. Thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. Gerard Sapes edits our scripts. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey handle our social media channels and outreach, and Steve Lane manages the website. This is Matt Blois. Music on today's episode comes from Poddington Bear.